If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 2. We'll pick up right where we left off last night. If you were able to join us last night, Luke 2, verse 21, will end in verse 38. Luke 2, 21 to 38. We've, uh, we've seen five different Christmas cards, Christmas portraits so far. One each from Matthew, Mark, and John. Two from Luke. We're about to make it three. But each evangelist brings us a unique perspective. And Luke shows us two people who were thrilled to receive their Christmas gifts. Now fine, maybe it was, it was a month or so after Christmas, but nonetheless, this gift was worth the wait. With that, let's read God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Luke 2, starting in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask him to bless his word now. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for that holy night when Christ was born. As we celebrate it today, would you help us to see our sin, and see our need of our Savior, our great Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. It wasn't the worst Christmas gift ever, but to a five-year-old boy, it might as well have been. His grandmother, you see, worked for a toy company, so he and his older brother, the only two grandkids at the time, were spoiled rotten. The gift in question came from his Aunt Beth, and it was... A sweater. Not on my list, the five-year-old thought silently for now. 
No bells, no whistles, no remote controls, no touchscreen, just a stupid sweater. So he sighed and said aloud, clothes, just what I didn't want. He was truthful. He was not very grateful. And that five-year-old, by the way, was me. My mom has mostly forgiven me until I brought it up again just now anyway. Bottom line is I wasn't grateful for the gift that I received. What's your attitude towards the gifts that you receive, particularly the gift that you've received in Christ Jesus? Are you like that bratty five-year-old or are you like Simeon and Anna? This story, this time of year, it makes me think of gifts, and we should all think of those two attitudes, gratitude and ingratitude, as we look at the different kinds of gifts in this story. We see three different kinds. The first one we see is this, a gift for the poor, a gift fit for the poor in verses 21 to 24. You know, one year when I was a young teenager, I didn't have much money, but I wanted to get my mom something nice for Christmas. She said that she needed a case for her cell phone. This is back when cell phones weren't all that common. Found a case that was made of leather. Okay, probably imitation leather. And it was also a wallet. See, for the 90s, this was pretty cool. And so I might have gotten something else. Not sure I did, but bottom line, I didn't have much to spend. Well, mom opened it. Mom loved it. It was so convenient. She thanked me several times. And I don't think it was one of those things that moms do where they say they really like, no, I think she actually did. And I appreciated that. But deep down, I knew it didn't cost me a ton. When I looked at it, I knew it was a gift fit for the poor, a poor giver. Well, Mary and Joseph's gift, their offering, it's a little bit like that. If you know your Bible, if you look at the little cross references and footnotes, you'll realize that it is a gift from a poor person, a gift fit for the poor. Why is that? How do we see that? Why is that a big deal? Well, we'll uh, lay this out here, but start with me in verse 21, where you see that eight-day-old Jesus is being circumcised, and then verse 22 is about five weeks later, roughly, and there we read verse 22, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice. According to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Mary and Joseph give this gift or offering for two reasons. One, it's a gift offering presentation of their firstborn child in recognition of how God redeemed, how he bought all the firstborn of Israel. You notice verse 23, if you look at those little footnotes and cross-references, it's quoting Exodus 13 too. What happens in Exodus 13? God spared all of Israel's children. His angel of judgment passed over their houses because of the blood of the lamb. And so unless you were part of the tribe of Levi and therefore devoted to temple service, you presented your firstborn, not so much to redeem your child back from God. You couldn't do that. The price was incalculable. It was more of a recognition of the greater price that God had already paid to redeem your children. You offered this sacrifice, this gift, this presentation of your child to acknowledge that redemption is costly. 
And the second reason they bring this gift or offering is because God commanded it. God commanded it for ritual purification. We won't do a deep dive into the book of Leviticus, but we will mention it for a moment. This was standard, you see, for any mother who had given birth. Some say it was because children were born with indwelling sin and therefore the mother needed to be purified. Well, of course, this baby is not like other babies. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is like us in every way, yet without sin. So why is Mary being purified? It's not because of Jesus' sin. She does it out of simple obedience to God's law. Again, verse 24 is quoting from the Old Testament. This time it's Leviticus 12. In Mary's obedience, it hints at the way that Jesus would fulfill God's law perfectly, entirely. He wouldn't overlook a thing because only one who, could, who was perfectly obedient could also be our sin bearer. Only he who knew no sin could be made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, Mary's son needed no purification, yet she gave this gift or offering for purification. But if you're a very careful reader, you'll notice that Mary and Joseph's gift, it is not the regular post-childbirth purification gift. No, it's, it's a footnote gift. It's the second best gift. It's the gift you give if you don't have enough money means for the regular gift, a poor person's gift. It's a gift fit for the poor. Look with me at, or listen to Leviticus chapter 12. The end of verse seven says, this is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. Verse eight, and if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. We don't need to get into all of the sacrificial system of Leviticus. But it's pretty clear, if she cannot afford a lamb, she shall offer these types of birds. And if you look at Luke, that's exactly what she offers. The gift from Mary and Joseph. <clears throat> it's a gift fit for the poor, and it's a reminder of the estate in which Jesus was born into. He's born into a humble estate. How do you see that? Well, one, he was born into a human body with all of the limitations, self-imposed limitations that come with it. He was also born to poor parents. He was born in a manger, as we talked about last night, a manger. It's not a, another style of baby crib. It's a feeding trough for animals. Would you want to put your baby in one? What if you had no choice? Jesus was also born under the law, Galatians 4 says. He was circumcised just like all the other Jewish babies because again, his life is going to be one of perfect obedience in all the ways that we've failed. We have a humble savior born into humble circumstances. J.C. Ryle says this, poverty was our Lord's portion upon the earth from the days of his earliest infancy. He didn't have a first-class seat for his journey to Calvary. He suffered and he suffered for the poor, the humble, the needy. And we need to remember this morning, whether we're living in a mansion or a shack, whether it was one Christmas present or a hundred, whether there were none under your Christmas tree, we need to remember that we are poor and needy. Maybe more than we realize. We have, 
We who are poor in spirit, as Matthew 5 says, we have a need that only the son of a poor Jewish carpenter can meet, but he will meet it. J.C. Ryle also says, let every poor believer remember that his mighty mediator in heaven is accustomed to poverty, and he knows by experience the heart of a poor man. That's what we need to remember when we see this gift, which is fit for the poor. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, <clears throat> he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's good to remember whether we're taking up of the offering or whether it's Christmas day or whether it's any day of the year. After the gift fit for the poor, we also see a gift worth waiting for. That's our second point this morning, a gift worth waiting for. This is verses 25 and 26, as well as 33 to 38. Have you ever gotten a gift that you wanted badly, a gift that you waited for? My cousin Andrew had a gift like that. That story is going to have to wait for a few minutes, no pun intended. But for now, let's meet Simeon and Anna. <clears throat> in verses 25 and 26, you see Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then there's Anna in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon was waiting, waiting for the consolation of Israel. We'll talk about that word consolation in a minute. How long did he wait? Was he a priest or just a regular in the temple? We don't know, but we know he was waiting. Anna was waiting as well for years through three different stages of life. It mentions her singleness. It mentions her married life for seven years. It also mentions a long time that she spent as a widow. And through it all, she was faithful. Waiting, hoping, trusting, fasting, praying for God's promises to be fulfilled. She was 84 years old, at least 84 years old when all this happened. Some think that she waited 84 years after she became a widow. Either way, she waited a long time. Once she sees what she's waiting for, she goes and she tells others. And who is it that she tells? All who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, verse 38 says, Apparently, many people had been waiting. And it seems that Jesus was worth the wait. Back then, they were waiting for the very first glimpse of the Messiah. Now, we wait for the final glimpse, you might say, the final unveiling, the apocalypsis, the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, his final reign, his final kingdom. Might be a different kind of waiting. Waiting all the same, and it too will be worth the wait. 
One hymn says it this way, O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. One day the waiting will be over and the waiting will be worth it. If you know what you're waiting for, that is. If you know what you're looking for. You see, as Mary and Joseph are wondering in verse 33, it's Simeon's first prophecy. We haven't covered that one yet. We will in a second. As they're wondering about the first prophecy, he gives a second. You see it in verses 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them, the parents, and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's not quite as happy and joyous. I don't know a lot of Christmas carols that are based on that one, huh? But the bottom line is some would reject Jesus. Some would oppose him. They would fall, as Simeon says. And Mary's soul, the immaterial part of her, would be pierced by all this, by her son's upcoming rejection. Someone has said this is Mary's preparation for the cross, what she would have to go through and endure. But it had to be this way. Her son, the son of God, he had to sacrifice himself to save his people. But there are many who would not understand this, many who would reject him. There would be a division among the people. Some disciples, in fact, couldn't believe it at first. Some disciples, others, some could never believe it. Many did not know. Many still don't know what they're ultimately waiting for. They're waiting, you might say, for the wrong thing. And they don't know the right thing even when it hits them in the face. But if you know what you're waiting for, if you know what you're waiting for, then one day the waiting will be over and the waiting will be worth it. Once again, have you ever had a gift that you really wanted? A gift that you had to wait for? My cousin Andrew had something like that. He was about seven or eight years old, and his parents bought him a bike for Christmas. And so his dad, my Uncle Bobby, he stayed up late on Christmas Eve putting the bike together like good dads do. And as the legend goes, Andrew snuck downstairs in the middle of the night to peek, to snoop. And then he went upstairs and he told his older sister, I got a bike. But of course, he still had to wait until that morning before he could receive that gift, before he could touch it, for ride it, admire it, and all of that. Meanwhile, Uncle Bobby found out somehow, I suspect it was his older sister, Nicole. He found out that Andrew had snuck downstairs and snooped at his presence. So he exercised a little bit of parental vengeance, justice. Christmas morning, Andrew comes barreling down the stairs. And Uncle Bobby is capturing it all on video. This is pre-cell phone days, so, you know, actual video camera here. And Andrew's so excited that as he barrels down the stairs, first he trips. And then if you listen closely, you can hear him say to his brothers and sisters, I got a bike, I got a bike. But then he looks for a minute and he says, where's my bike? His dad hid the bike. And he even twisted the knife a little by saying, what are you looking for, Andrew? Andrew had waited all night long for that bike. But on Christmas morning, he was a little disappointed at first. Now they gave him the bike eventually. 
but not until the joke stopped being funny. But initially for Andrew, waiting was followed by disappointment. Back to Luke 2. Simeon and Anna, as we've said, they waited. And they weren't disappointed. They were satisfied. They received the gift worth waiting for. And it was also a gift to die for. That's our third point this morning. A gift to die for. You see that in verses 27 through 32. Do you have a memory of a gift like that? A gift to die for. What is your best gift ever? I've had some memorable ones over the years, besides that sweater, of course. I once got a very nice watch from my brother. That was very nice. I still have an Alabama keychain, my wife's first Christmas present to me. There's a year I remember when my parents had us play hide and seek for our gifts. They hid them and we had to find them. That was fun. I don't even remember what we got, but the experience was fun. What's yours? Your gift that you remember, your gift that stands above the rest. Because no matter how good it was, was it a gift to die for? Was it that good? There's a well-known sports writer who grew up in Boston and he wrote a book titled, Now I Can Die in Peace. It was about the Boston Red Sox ending their long wait for another World Series title. Once upon a time, they went 86 years between World Series titles. 86, slightly longer than Anna waited, I believe. But Israel, of course, the nation as a whole, God's people as a whole, waited even longer. It was 400 years of silence. And before that, there were generations upon generations who died without seeing the full fulfillment of this promise that God had given. Because they waited even longer, I believe Simeon's satisfaction was greater. I believe Anna's satisfaction was greater. Their consolation was greater. A whole lot better than a consolation prize. There was no disappointment for them after the long wait. Only satisfaction and consolation. Now remember, Simeon, he was waiting for this consolation in verse 25. He's waiting for the Messiah. And then he sees baby Jesus, something like 40, 45 days old at this point. He sees baby Jesus in verse 27. And because the spirit is upon Simeon, it says in verse 25, he proclaims in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon is saying, now I can die. Now I can depart in peace. Thank you, Lord. This child is a gift worth dying for. What else do I need? I've seen your salvation. What do, we, what do we learn from Simeon? I'll let Phil Riken say it. Anyone who has seen Jesus with the eyes of faith is prepared to die. And anyone who has not seen him, whether young or old, is not ready to die at all. If you've seen Jesus with the eyes of faith and you've seen God's salvation for sinners, you've seen Israel's hope and consolation, you might understand that idea of consolation better than you realize. The church's one foundation says it this way. Mid toil and tribulation, in tumult of her war, she waits the consolation of peace forevermore. And with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed. And the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Christ's salvation, the 
portion that we have now, the promise of its full fruition at the end of the age, it is a gift for the worldwide church, for all the people who find their hope and rest in Christ. You might say, in Christ, we have a gift to die for. We know that Paul says to die is actually gain. We don't think of it that way. We fear death. We try to avoid it. We try to stay young forever. But as Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. I'm not saying you all need to go home and say, I'm ready to die. I want to die. That's a little bit of a weird thought for Christmas morning. But on one level, you need to know that even if you were to die, that would be far better, as Paul says. And therefore, we need to realize that what we have in Christ, this gift to die for, we have the greatest gift the world could give. Is that a cliche to you this morning? Is that a sales pitch that the gift can't live up to? Or is it actually selling that gift short? This gift that takes our mess, our nastiness, our sin, and it turns it into a perfect, spotless righteousness. This gift that takes the wrath that you deserve and turns it into a blessing. The gift that made St. Augustine say some 1,500 years ago, our hearts are restless until they find, till it finds our rest in thee. I mean, that's got to be better than hand warmers or poppets or squishmallows or self-heating coffee mugs, right? Maybe even better than air fryers and Apple watches, maybe. It's the free gift of God's salvation. Has it become a cliche to you? Is that because the truth has grown stale or because you've grown cynical? Because you've had an understandably hard year or two or three? Are you so busy buying and receiving gifts that you've forgotten the most important gift? Have you spent so much time dreaming about how to spend those gift cards that you've treated Jesus the way that a five-year-old treats a sweater? As we close, what's, what's most appealing to you this Christmas? What's at the top of that Christmas list? What would make it a Christmas to die for? Is it possible that the gift you're really longing for is a gift that's been available to you, a gift that's been present for you all along, a gift whose worth is infinite, a gift who took on the form of something very modest, very humble, very poor, a gift that people anticipated, longed for, waited for for centuries, a gift that brought satisfaction and consolation, the kind that lasts. If you received that gift, what would you do? Would you treasure it? Would you push it aside like a sweater and look for something that glitters and whistles? My friends, have yourself a merry little Christmas by rediscovering the very first Christmas gift because it's a gift to die for. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great gift that we have in Christ. We don't despise any of your earthly gifts. We don't despise any of the temporary things you've given us. Everything we have is from you. But Father, help us not to ignore the best thing we have, the salvation that can be found, the peace that can be found, the joy that can be found through Christ Jesus, your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.